Hey, good morning. A great morning, a beautiful day, the first day of the rest of your life, and another day to make those songs a reality. You know, young people, I would encourage you, I've been through as any of us that have lived very long in the Christian life, I've been through some deep and dark and difficult times. We, we all have our own story to tell, but I can tell you this, in the darkest time that my wife and I ever went through, we used to take a hymn book and we would sit down on our couch and we would sing. And it was always amazing, we would be so heavy and the opposition and hostility was so great and it just seemed like the enemy was winning at every turn. And when we took that hymn book and sat down and started singing, it was like the darkness just flew away. So I would really encourage you, keep these songs in your heart. I want to read you. You don't need to turn to this one. Uh, you can look it up later. This is from Revelation 3.10. I want to plant a new thought in your mind this morning. First of all, no man left behind. Remember that. No man left behind. In Revelation 3.11, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Here's your life in a nutshell. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you started the race. And it's going to be uphill and downhill, and I can't even draw how many twists and turns there are going to be in your life. But you need to always see this in light of this. Revelation 3.11 Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. No man left behind. We, uh, this morning, as every morning, uh, Mark is reading a Medal of Honor citation. God has his own Medal of Honor recipients. They're given crowns. In our military we talk about no man left behind. In other words, when our guys are fighting the enemy, they don't run off the battlefield and leave a wounded soldier laying there. And we saw a very great example of that this morning with Robert Howard. Christians have the same concept. And I want to read you Two citations this morning. One I'm going to tell you of a guy named John Harper. How many of you know about John Harper? Anybody ever heard about John Harper? Last night I asked you how many of you knew the story of the Titanic. How many of you know the story of the Titanic? Almost all of you. And I told you that at the end of the sinking of that great vessel, 
even though there were all kinds of people on that ship, at the end there were only two kinds. Those that were saved, those that were lost. John Harper was a preacher in England. He was 39 years old. His wife had died, leaving him with a little six-year-old daughter. John Harper had been invited to preach at the Moody Church in Chicago and was on the Titanic on his way to preach with his niece and his little six-year-old daughter. He wrote a letter as the ship had left England. It had stopped at a port in Ireland. He wrote a letter. That letter just sold for 49,000 pounds in England. A letter of gratitude to someone who had shown him hospitality while he was staying in their home. When the ship began to sink, John Harper immediately got his niece and his little daughter into one of the lifeboats. He took off his life vest and gave it to another man and stood on the deck preaching the gospel as the lifeboats were pulling away. When the ship went down, John Harper, like all of the others on the ship, some 1,500 souls, went into the water. He grabbed hold of a piece of floating wreckage from the ship, something that was afloat, was holding on to it, and he was paddling from person to person as they were going down, asking them, do you have eternal life? We know the story of John Harper's finish of his race because a young Scotsman was on that ship. And at a revival in England some years later, I think it was about three years later, the Titanic was brought up and the importance of knowing that you have eternal life. And that young Scotsman said, I was holding on to a floating piece of wreckage and the wave brought close to me a man that I knew to be John Harper. And John Harper called out to me, are you saved? And I said, no. And he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then he went off to try to reach other people who were treading water or people that were holding on to something floating. And pretty soon as he made his rounds, he came back around to this same young Scotsman and said, are you saved? And he said, I'm not sure. And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And he said he came around the third time as we were floating, he said, with two miles of ocean beneath me. The wave brought John Harper back around to me one last time, and he said, are you saved? And I said, yes. And John Harper released what he was holding on to and sank beneath the waves. What's that? 1,500 people died. 1,500 people went down. He died. Yeah, he went under the, under the water at that point. So that's an example of someone who's going to have a crown. Now, you don't have to sink with the Titanic to get a crown. What I want to show you today, and Mark gave us some amazing 
things that we need to do every day last night, and I hope you're all listening because discipline is the key to being a disciple. A disciple is a disciplined person for Christ. I want to give you five things today that will change your whole life if you'll do them, and they're very, very simple. But before we get to them, I need to set the stage. And the stage that I want to set begins in, in uh, Psalm chapter 8. And I want to build on this idea. Again, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have eternal life this morning, you're already in the race. You've already been entered. The starting gun has gone off and you are running the race. Hold fast what you have that no one take your crown. Let me throw out an idea to you. What if you lined up at the starting line and an official came over to you and said, by the way, I just want to let you know you're already the winner. You have already been selected for first place. All you have to do is run the race. Your award is waiting. It's a little bit of a different concept, but it's a concept that I believe is going to come through as we look through the scripture. If you're with me in Psalm chapter 8, actually I'm not there yet. Psalm 8 is a sad story. It's a story that starts out magnificently. How many of you have seen The Lion King? Did you know that they stole the story of The Lion King? Where did they steal it from? They stole it from Scripture. It's the story about the Lord Jesus Christ regaining a crown that was lost. And in Psalm chapter 8, King David, which the Bible calls the greatest of all the kings of the earth, there was never a greater than King David. And his greatness was based on his dedication and devotion to God. And David wrote in Psalm 8, a psalm that was turned into a song that the people would sing in Israel. And it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. In other words, beyond the skies, beyond the clouds, beyond the stars, Beyond the galaxies, your glory is shining above everything. David was looking a thousand years into the future. Verse 2, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength, or some translations read praise, because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes. You know, sometimes God accomplishes his greatest things through children. Jesus said, if you give a cup of cold water to a child in my name, you will not lose your reward. I want you to think about that. A cup of cold water to a child. And I want to challenge each and every one of you here at this camp because there are young people here at this camp who desperately need your support. As we're singing, and I see all of you lined up, and I see you with your arms around each other, and you're all into the music and singing and swaying, there are some that are not a part of that group. Why not? 
Why are they ignored? Why are they overlooked? Well, sometimes they may not want to hear the gospel or sometimes they're not included. You know, it's very hard when you see a group to push yourself forward and join that group because you fear rejection. I want to challenge each and every one of you because as I look back on my life, some of my proudest moments and some of my greatest requests, uh, regrets, sorry, are the kids I reached out to that needed a friend or the kids that needed a friend and I rejected them or made fun of them like everybody else. Everybody here who's an adult knows exactly what I'm talking about. And to remember, I mean, clear back in first, second grade, going out of my way to help a little crying girl who was scared, I remember that, and it gives me such comfort and then there was another girl in our class that everybody made fun of, and I remember making fun of her, and it pierces me like a dagger. Pastor John Francis talked about persecution. In 2000, I believe 2009 and 2010, a horrible persecution broke out in the Indian state of Orissa. I believe now they call it Odisha. Horrible persecution. Thousands of Christians were killed. Thousands of churches were burned down. The same thing back then that's going on right now in India, in Manipur. There was a little girl, 11 years old. Her father was a pastor. The pastors are always the main targets. The mob came and surrounded their house. They drug her father and her mother out of the house and put them to death. But before they did, the mother took this little 11-year-old girl and stuck her in a cabinet and said, stay here no matter what happens. The little girl curled up in the cabinet. The mob lit the house on fire. The house burned down around that little girl and severely burned every part of her body. When they finally came and sifted through the rubble, they found this little 11-year-old girl horribly burned. They took her to a hospital. They didn't think she would survive, but amazingly, she survived the horrible burns, and over long, long months, she finally recovered enough to where she was able to leave the hospital. Now, you have to understand, in India, they don't have all the programs to help people that we have here. And so when this little girl got out of the hospital, she had no one to care for her. Her mother and father are gone. She's all alone in the world. And as she walked out the door of the hospital, the doctor said, where will you go? She said, I'm going back to my village. They said, why would you go back to a village where they killed your parents and burned your house down? And she said, because they need to know Jesus. She was nicknamed the Little Apostle. She went back to her village at 11 years old and began preaching the gospel boldly and ultimately, from the stories that I've read, went from village to village as she continued to preach the gospel. I have no idea where she is today, but I know one thing. There is a Medal of Honor recipient in heaven. The Little Apostle. 
There was even, I think, a pastor who tried to convince her not to go back. He said, think of the horrible things that they have done. What may they do to you? And you know what she said to him? Sir, what's the matter with you? Don't you want to suffer for Jesus? Sir, what's the matter with you? Don't you want to suffer for Jesus? What an amazing statement. Out of the mouths of babes and infants and children. So many times out of the mouths of my own children have come words that have rebuked and corrected me. I'm sure every parent can say that. Verse 3, when I consider the heavens, here's David out under the stars, and he says, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? And some translations will say that you visit him. I like that translation better. Because God did visit his creation what is man or the son of man that you would visit him? You have made him a little lower than God, or some translations say lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. You have made him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and beasts of the field and birds of the heaven and fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. In other words, you subdued creation to him. Here's what I want to, you to understand about what David's talking. David is thinking back to the creation of Adam. And when God created Adam and put him on this earth, in this creation, a perfect creation, he gave him the role of the king. He was to rule over creation. And of course, as we all know, something happened because there was an infiltration into that creation by Satan. And Satan entered the serpent and used the serpent as an instrument to tempt Adam and Eve. And when sin entered the world, guess what happened? The crown passed from Adam to Satan. The devil is called the ruler of this world. He usurped, just like in the uh, story, what's the evil lion's name that took the crown and the place of the king? That's what Satan did. That story came right out of the Bible, and Disney came up with a fake illustration of it to try to get your minds off the true story. The crown now sits on the head of Satan. Well, no. I should say in David's time, the crown sat on Satan. The crown was stolen. The crown was conquered. Verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When David said, what is man that you would visit him? He shifted his attention away from Adam and the loss of the crown and the loss of the kingdom forward to the Lord Jesus Christ who would come, who would visit us, who would enter into this world as a counterattack to reclaim the kingdom. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, we see the kingdom reclaimed. Wish I had time to explain everything in the first two chapters, but if you just read the first two chapters of the book of Hebrews, 
you will see how glorious the Lord Jesus Christ truly is. He quotes Psalm 8. Notice beginning Hebrews 2 verse 5. For he, God, did not subject to angels the world to come. He's not talking now about this one. He's looking forward. He's anticipating the coming kingdom and the coming new heavens and new earth. He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we're speaking. But someone has testified somewhere, happens to be King David in Psalm 8, saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him or that you visit him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Now notice, this is the sad statement. In subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that was not subject to him. But now we do not see all things subjected to him. In other words, what's he saying? He's saying as we look around our world, we do not see a glorious kingdom being ruled over by a glorious king on this earth. What we see is sin, sorrow, and suffering. You can't turn on the news. You can't listen to the airwaves. You can't go on the internet without gloom and doom and sorrow and suffering and misery overwhelming you. And young people, we are living in a historic time. What's happening right now in this country and around the world are the greatest events that have ever happened in human history with one exception, and that is when Christ came into the world, lived his life, went to the cross, was crucified, buried, and raised again, except for that short, brief 33 years, what's happening right now in the world is the biggest part of the conflict that has ever been played out on the stage of human history. I would encourage you to wake up because you're living in momentous times. We are engaged in a war that is going on around the world. With the coming of the so-called pandemic, with the nations taking powers and authorities they have no right to take. The first time in human history since the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 10, all of the nations of the world devoted themselves to evil. The first time. And worse than in Genesis chapter 10. And the counterattack is now on. And you and I are going to be a part of it. And the end is going to be glorious, though the days between now and then may be dark. We don't see this world under mankind crowned and reigning under God the way God intended. We do not see now everything under his feet. But, I love this conjunction of contrast, but... In spite of the doom, in spite of the gloom, in spite of the fear that is being peddled every day. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for every man. We don't see the world the way God 
intended it to be. We don't see the world being run by holy, godly, noble, honorable men and women the way God intended. But we do see something. We see our champion, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world, conquered death, conquered the grave, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is wearing the crown of victory. Now that's important to you, and I'm going to explain why. Verse 10 says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, through whom are all things. In other words, he created all things. All things exist because of him. He is going to claim all things in the end. It was fitting for him in bringing many sons to glory. That's right here. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting for him to do something. To perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. We see that word perfect again. We saw it last night that you may be perfect and complete. What it actually means is to arrive at the goal God intended for you. To reach the goal, to cross the finish line. The Lord Jesus Christ crossed the finish line and he is now crowned with glory and honor. It calls him, I'm reading from the New American Standard, uh, it calls him the author of their salvation. I want to read you the meaning of that word. Archegos. The word archegos means a leader or a pioneer. In Greek writings, it was used of the hero who founded a city and gave it its name and became its guardian. It was also used to denote one who is the head of a new family or the founder of a new school. The term always had a distinct military connotation referring to a commander of an army who went ahead of his men to blaze the trail before them. Imagine the commander of an army who can order his men to go to the place of danger who says, I'll go. I will be the advanced scout. I will blaze the trail. You follow behind me. That's a great commander. And that's what Jesus Christ has done. And I told you last night that as James was encouraging us to rejoice when we come into trials because they have a purpose, they're a part of God's plan, they're what are designed to make us great. We just sang the song, Shall I Go to Heaven on Beds of Ease? While others fought to the blood, while the little apostle, this little girl, suffered so much anguish and pain and loss, and is a witness for Christ, should I just expect to go in comfort and ease? Not at all. So the Lord Jesus Christ showed us the path from the cross to the crown. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father, crowned with glory and honor. What God intended in the creation of Adam, what Adam lost to Satan by temptation, Christ has now reclaimed. With that in mind, turn with me to Matthew 5. You know, our time up here, I know for you guys it probably seems like it drags. For us, it seems like it flies. There's so much that we want to share and so much that we want to say. But I want you to look at 
the first message Jesus ever preached in a little bit of a new light. You know, there are three major messages of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. This is the first one. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And it talks about a future kingdom. The second one was the Olivet Discourse. And in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus talks about the tribulation. The last one was in the upper room, and in that one Jesus talked about the church age. Think about this. If you look at history from the time of the cross, moving forward, Jesus gives his first message, Matthew 5 through 7, and it's talking about the kingdom. He starts at the end. He wants people to understand where everything's going. Then, on the Mount of Olives, Matthew 24 and 25, also Luke 21, he talks about what happens before the kingdom, big T, tribulation. Then, in his final hours with the disciples in the upper room, John chapters 13 to 17, he talks about the church age. Talks about the time where you and I are right now. The time between the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, the rapture of the church, which is yet future, and John 13 through 17 is all about the church age. So we are in... Matthew 5, and he's talking about the coming kingdom. The king lays down his platform for his people. Very quickly, Matthew 5. When Jesus saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain. Literally, he went up toward the mountain. I've stood on the place where the Sermon on the Mount was given. Jesus was not on top of the mountain. There were thousands and thousands of people listening. If he was on top of the mountain, nobody would have heard him. The wind comes from the sea or the lake of Galilee up toward the mountain. Jesus came toward the mountain and sat down. The multitudes gathered in the mountain, which was like a natural amphitheater and we have done an experiment where a man stood at the bottom and I stood at the top and he spoke in a voice less than what I'm speaking to you right now and I could hear every word clearly and they said you could fit 100,000 people into that amphitheater. Sound travels up and away from the water. So Jesus went up toward the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to a very important point because what he's teaching here is not for the multitudes, it's for his disciples. His disciples came to them, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, the disciples, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
rejoice. Isn't it interesting? Jesus ends the Beatitudes where James begins. Rejoice, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. Where did James learn what he taught in James chapter 1? He was sitting here listening to the Lord. Even though he was an unbeliever, we know from Scripture that when Jesus left his hometown of Nazareth after they tried to kill him and he moved to Capernaum, his mother and his brothers went with him. And it was not far from there that he gave this message. And no doubt his brothers followed along to say, uh, what's the old crazy older brother going to say this time? And he was there and he heard the message. Now here's what I want you to think about. Think of all of these statements of blessed. The word blessed, makarios, is a word that means to share the happiness of God. I want you to think about that. Our happiness fluctuates. Something good happens, we're happy. Something bad happens, we're not happy. God's happiness never fluctuates. It is always perfect. To share the perfect happiness of God. In order to share the perfect happiness of God, you have to have these characteristics. How many of you can measure up to what he's teaching right here? Anybody? I only got one smart guy in the whole room. Did you realize that when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, all of these qualities which belong to Him are yours? We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation or new creature. If any man is in Christ, are you in Christ? Remember 1 Corinthians 15, 22? In Adam all die. In Christ all are made alive. Where are you? You're in one of those two places. If you have not yet entered into Christ by faith, you're in Adam and you are on your way, not just to physical death, but to an eternal death. We fear physical death. We shouldn't fear physical death. We should fear eternal death. Because it's going to be dying forever. People say, well, I'm going to go to hell where all my friends are. Well, I hate to break this to you, but one of the horrible things about hell, you will be totally and completely alone. The Bible describes hell as a place of total darkness. It describes it as a place of burning fire, but I'm convinced that that burning fire is not a flame out here, it's a flame in here. Everyone who goes to hell is going to remember every time they heard the gospel. They're going to remember every time the Spirit of God convicted them. They're going to remember every time someone appealed to them to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll remember how they laughed. They'll remember how they mocked. They remember how they said, oh, I'll go to hell and be with my friends. And here they are in the dark and in pain and anguish and agony. And they're going to be there forever and ever. By the way, young people, God does not send people to hell. Every single person in hell will stand convicted by their own tongue. Because when they see what Christ did on their behalf, and when they see the love of God, and they see the many times that God drew them, appealed to them, tried to get them to come to Christ, they're going to fall on their knees, and they're going to confess with their own mouth that Jesus Christ is rightfully the Lord, and that they have rejected Him, and they will go to hell on the basis of their own confession. 
You don't want to be there. You want to be here. And when you entered into Jesus Christ, God made you a new creature. And that new creature is perfect. This is probably outdated for most of you. Maybe some of the older people will remember it, but some years ago there was a movie that came out called Dangerous Minds. Have you ever seen the movie Dangerous Minds? <clears throat> you know, when you have a, a biblical framework, a biblical mindset, you see Bible class in everything you see, either for good or for bad. In this movie, there is a young lady, I think it's played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, I think that may be right. But at any rate, she was in the Marine Corps, got out of the Marines, and went into education, became a school teacher. And she goes into, uh, and I can't remember whether she chose it or they assigned her to one of the inner city schools in New York. And the kids have no discipline, and they just make fun. She's in the senior high school, and, and the kids just run over the teachers all the time, and they assign this young lady to the school. So she walks in the first day and she says, and all the kids are cutting up, laughing, yelling, throwing paper, shoving each other around, going crazy. She said, I have an important announcement that I want to make on our first day of school. So they stopped and listened to her and she said, I'm going to give all of you an A immediately. You start out with an A. And the guys in the back are going, all right, man, we got it made. You know, making fun of it. She says, no, I'm serious. I have already entered into the end of your school year. You have an A. And then they finally said, so what's the catch? She said, you have to keep it. I've already given it to you, but you have to keep it. Because our system is not going to be based on adding points. It's going to be based on subtracting points. And with every demerit, you get closer and closer to losing the A that you already have. Is this beginning to sound familiar? Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. I want to suggest to you my opinion. I'm not dogmatic. I wouldn't argue it. Uh, but I believe based on Scripture, the moment you trusted Jesus Christ, that crown was put in heaven and your name was written on it. You already have it. Hold fast what you have that no one take your crown. Can you imagine standing in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ? One day the race is going to be over. And one day we're going to have our private moment. Did you ever want to have just a private moment with Jesus Christ? You're going to have it. It's called the judgment seat or the bema seat of Christ. And 1 Corinthians chapter 3 explains to us that when we stand before the Lord at that time, everything in our life, not including sins, remember your sins were taken care of at the cross. Sin will never be an issue. If you've ever heard a preacher say, they're going to put up a big screen and show all your sins and you're going to be embarrassed, that's baloney. Your sins were paid at the cross. They are removed as far as the east from the west. They will never be remembered by God. You will never have to answer for your sins in the presence of God. 
but you will have to answer for your good that's not good enough. The good that's not good enough. The messages, I'll use an example of myself, the messages that I preach in my own strength, in my own energy, for my own satisfaction or whatever, they're not going to count. And we're going to stand in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and He is going to sort through our life and He is going to separate what is wood, hay, and stubble. That's human good from gold, silver, and precious stones. That's divine good. That's what we did by faith. That's what we did in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we did in obedience to Him. And He's going to separate it all and He's going to burn the wood, the hay, and the stubble and what remains is going to be the gold, silver, and precious stones. The question will be, will the gold, silver, and precious stones that remain be equal to the crown? Can you imagine standing before Jesus Christ and losing that crown? That's a thought that keeps me up at night. How can we avoid that? Five things. i got about seven minutes. There are five things that you can do every day, young people, that will guarantee. And last night, again, Mark challenged us just in a great, short, hard-hitting message about daily discipline. Here are your five daily disciplines. 5DD. You do these every day, I guarantee you'll have the crown, number one. And by the way, they're easy to remember because you do them every day. Every day you do these. You do them for your body. You may not do them for your soul. Number one, wash. Number two, eat. Number three, walk. Number four, work. And number five, rest. You do those five things every day. You do them for your body. Start doing them for your soul. Wash. What do we mean? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me just ask you a gut check right now. When is the last time you went before the Lord and said, Father, please reveal to me anything that I've thought, anything I've said, anything I've done today that was wrong so that I can confess it to you and you can cleanse it. The very first thing Jesus did for the disciples in the upper room was wash their feet as an example of how important this is. And what Peter say? You're not going to wash my feet. Yeah, Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. He said, he who is bathed, that means he who is saved, is already clean. You're already completely clean, except for your dirty feet from walking through this world. Make sure you wash your soul every day. Eat Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you spend time in God's word every day? And young people, you don't have to read a book. You don't even have to read a chapter if you would read a few verses. Just pick a book and slowly work your way through. And wherever you stop, put a little red mark and say, this is where I'm going to pick up tomorrow. I may read two verses, three verses, but then think about them, internalize them, and apply them in your life. Walk. 1 John 1.7 
If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The first thing we do is confess where we failed. The second thing we do is we feed on his word to get us strength. And then the third thing that we do is apply what we learn as we walk through our day. Walking in the light. Walking in obedience. And why do we walk? We walk so that we can go to work. We go to school. We go to our job. We go to here you have activities. You have to walk to your activities. You walk so that you can work. And Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 tells us we are his workmanship. The word workmanship actually means masterpiece. We are his masterpiece, that new creation that he created. We are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Young people, if you're here as a believer in Jesus Christ, God has good works for you to do today. That person you've been avoiding who is always left out, go put your arm around them, speak a word of encouragement, pull them in to your crowd. Don't let other people reject someone at this camp. Call them out on it. Who are you to look down on this person? Who are you to think you're better than someone else? Who are you to pass judgment when you can't even see the soul of another human being? Do it. Do the work. See someone struggling. Help them out. See someone hurting. Comfort them. Do the work. And then rest. Matthew chapter 11, 28 to 30. Jesus' first invitation. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's an invitation to salvation. And I hope that all of you, although I know that some of you haven't, some of you are sitting here and you're hearing words that are going to come back to you one day in eternity. If you don't make a decision for Jesus Christ, you will have to say, yes, I heard. I had the opportunity. I was encouraged to believe. I was invited to believe. And I hardened my heart and I closed my mind. And now I have eternity in hell in front of me forever. We can only do what we can do. But Jesus said, I will give you rest. It's a free gift, but he didn't stop there. He said, take my yoke and learn from me. By the way, those of you who are being very attentive, and I see you taking notes, and it's such an encouragement to me, you are doing what Jesus Christ commands us to do here. You are learning from him. It's not me. I'm just the mouthpiece. He's the one talking to you right now. Take my yoke. This is the yoke. Why do you put a yoke on an animal? Because it's time to go to work. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. Listen carefully. For I am meek and lowly. My burden is light. My yoke is easy. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. And you will find rest for your soul. If you've trusted Christ, we already have the rest of knowing that we have eternal life. But we need daily rest. We need rest today from the burdens, from the demands, from the cares, the concerns, the hurt, and the pain that we go through. You can find that rest. You can take that yoke and put it on you. In other words, what is Jesus saying? And this is my final challenge. 
He's saying you want to ease your burdens? Ease someone else's. You want to lighten your load? Pick up someone else's load. You want to dry your tears? Find someone who's crying and comfort them. Whatever you want God to do to you, you do for someone else. If you are discouraged, if you are depressed, you find someone who's depressed and pick them up, I guarantee you just solve your problem. We've got people all over this country who are going to shrinks and psychiatrists and counselors trying to resolve their problems, and I could resolve their problem in one day. Go pick someone else up. Go heal someone else's wound. Go comfort someone. Lift someone. Encourage someone, and you will encourage yourself. Young people, those of you who continue to resist the gospel, eternity is closer than you think. It's, it's just a few breaths away. For those of you who have trusted Christ, this is your assignment for the day. Wash. Don't go out and serve someone else. We don't want our people in the kitchen serving us with hands after they just went to the bathroom, do we? I told my grandson one time we went in a public restroom, we walked out and he grabbed the handle and walked out and I said, you just touched 35 people's butt. He said, what do you mean? I said, everybody comes in here, takes a crap, wipes their butt, grabs hold of the handle and walks out and you just touched that handle. I wash my hands, I dry with a towel, I take the towel and wrap it around the handle and every time I did it just this morning, I wrapped the towel around the handle. I said, I don't touch anybody's butt. Wash and then eat so you have strength. Walk in fellowship and obedience to the Lord. Do the work He has for you to do today. And tonight when you lay down, I promise you that pillow is going to be soft and your rest is going to be easy. May God bless you all, bless us all to do what He has shown us this morning. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are thankful for your grace. We pray your blessing on these young people. Let your word come alive in us and help us live it out in this camp today. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you, young folks.